Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, attorney Kim Hegwood of Your Legacy Legal Care and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning and welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and my very, very special guest today, Dr. Tam Cummings. I'm super excited for you to be on the show today. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. really am. Perfect. And so today we're going to talk about the tools for the nine most common forms of dementia. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad we're having this conversation, to be honest with you, because I have a lot of clients that come into the office and, they, and I say, you know, what's your diagnosis? It's dementia. What type of dementia? Uh, I don't know. Dementia. Is there, you know, is there, a, is there a type? You know, the doctor just said I had dementia. Which doctor? Uh, the primary care physician. You know, I'm like, okay, well, they don't, they only know a little, but not what you need, you know, so, so this is going to be great. So we're going to talk about them. And uh, so let's kind of hit the ball rolling. And, um, and so could, let's lay out the nine most common forms of dementia. Well, um, if, you, if you don't mind, let's start with what dementia is. Dementia okay. is the umbrella term for a group of 128 terminal brain diseases. These are all terminal diagnoses. The about 70 of those 128 dementias are considered children's Alzheimer's. So you and I never deal with them in our field. I deal with older people. Um, you deal with adults. And the care is given by the parents. Of the remaining dementias, nine of them constitute 98% of all the dementias. And so what we do to help families be able to go back to their doctor with better questions is we do what the doctors do to make a diagnosis. You take the person's age, sex, and their clinical features, or in the case of dementia, the behaviors that the family is witnessing, and then you remove everything it cannot be, and what you're left with is what it must be. And that's how any medical diagnosis is made. And so just by doing that with these nine dementias, it gives families a much better understanding of what they're going to the doctor to ask about because the PCP gets a paragraph on dementia in medical school. They do not study dementia. You have to have a neurologist who is a specialist in dementia. Most neurologists don't study dementia. You need a geri psych, a geriatric psychiatrist because they study the brain in dementia or you need a geriatrician. And most families that you and I run into don't haven't, haven't had access to those types of people or even realize it. So we start with those nine dementias and remove what it cannot be. So I'll give you the nine if, if you feel like you're ready for that. Go. You ready? All right. <laughs> yeah. the, first, uh, the largest of the dementias is mixed dementia, meaning that the person has more than one form of dementia. And on autopsy and primarily through research out of Europe, we now realize that it is not at all uncommon for people to have two, three, four, five, or six different forms of dementia at the same time, which means this person has six different terminal diseases of the brain. And the hardest thing I think about dementias for families is that the person doesn't look physically ill until they lose about a pound of brain tissue and are in stage six of the disease. And because of social skills that you and I learned uh, at about the age of two, we begin to learn the social conversation of, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How's your family? Oh, they're fine. 
people think that if a person can do that social conversation, that's, that's the same as cognition and it's not. No. The second dementia is the Alzheimer's group. And there's not one Alzheimer's. There are four identified groups of Alzheimer's. And then each one of those has variations and subsets. The next one is the vascular dementia group. And there are about four dozen identified vascular dementias. And rarely, rarely do I run into somebody, even with a specialist, who's been diagnosed appropriately with the correct form of vascular dementia, which is very important to the children and grandchildren because we inherit our cardiovascular system. The third dementia is the Lewy body, or the fourth dementia is the Lewy body dementia group, and there are nine variations of Lewy bodies. It's not one, it's which one. After Lewy bodies, we have the frontal temporal dementias. This is the dementia we think of as of people who are in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. But as a rule of thumb, <clears throat> our teaching is if the person comes to me in their late 50s or early 60s, I must first rule out the forms of FTD and there are nine FTDs, frontal temporal dementias, meaning they're attacking the frontal and the temporal lobes primarily. I have to rule that out before we can begin to talk about a different dementia. After the FTD is Parkinson's disease dementia, Parkinson's disease dementia has now been pulled under the Lewy body dementia umbrella. It is now considered a variation of Lewy body dementia. And so what that has led to research is that if a person develops Parkinson's disease dementia, we are then watching for the onset of Lewy body dementia, followed by the onset of Alzheimer's dementia. So it is very common if a person has Lewy bodies, they also develop Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. If they have Parkinson's, they also develop Lewy body and then Alzheimer's. Uh, the next one is uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff, which is commonly called alcohol dementia. Now, I'm not talking you watched your college football bowl game this weekend and you had a beer. I'm talking the day I asked the guy, do you drink? And he said, oh, one a day. And I said, oh, one what a day? And he said, a case of beer and a bottle of whiskey. That's the kind of drinking you're talking about. So significant amounts of alcohol on a continuous basis causes the brain not to be able to use or produce thiamine. And that's what leads to that dementia. And then there's uh, the eighth dementia is Huntington's disease dementia. This is inherited. It is passed from the parent to the child. The child either has it or they're a carrier. And this is also our highest suicide group uh, because the child knows they have it and they know what the outcome is going to be. Then the final dementia is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. This is commonly known as football dementia. There are four forms of this that have been identified so far. It even has its own separate staging tool because this is the only dementia staged in four stages the way cancer is. All of the other dementias are staged in seven stages. And then because y'all are in the Houston area, you also have to always remember toxic dementias because y'all live in areas with large amounts of chemicals, large amounts of oil, uh, large amounts of gas burning off. And in certain areas of the country, especially those areas where we see chemical things, we see a much higher level of Lewy body and Parkinson's disease dementias. So the way we would use this tool is I'll use my mother as the example. My mother is 83. She never played football a day in her life. I can mark off CTE. My family does not have Huntington's. That is inherited. I can mark off Huntington's. 
Wernicke Korsakoff, my mother's never had a drink of alcohol in her life. I can mark that one off. She doesn't have Parkinson's disease, so she can't have Parkinson's disease, dementia. I can mark that one off. At 83, she is much too old for FTD. I can mark that one off. Louis body has these unusual hallucination and sleep behaviors. The four hallucinations that we tend to see in Louis bodies are the person sees children. They see bug spiders, rats, and snakes. They see bad people coming to get them. And that can include a family member. Uh, that can include, I hear people around my house. I see people coming in my house. A lot of times they describe what sounds like a SWAT team or an army team coming to get them. And then the last one, and this is the one that we really have problems with with families because they're embarrassed to tell the doctor. And this is exactly what the doctor needs to know. The person with Louis bodies sees their spouse or their caregiver having sex with everyone everywhere, usually out in public as well. My mother doesn't have any of those, so I can take off Lewy bodies. But my mother has obesity and cellulitis and hyperlipidemia and high blood pressure and AFib and a documented stroke history. She grew up with a smoker. She lived with a smoker. All of those things scream vascular dementia. And vascular dementia is not something that comes on slowly. Your vascular system you've had always. So this is just the accumulation of decades of things not working quite right in the vascular system. And what we know about any dementia is if you have it in place long enough, Alzheimer's would join it. So I will go back to the doctor for my mother to ask about vascular dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, or a combination of the two. And that's how you use the tool. Wow. Okay. Cause you know, I knew there were different forms of dementia. I knew that. And, um, and, but to know that there's different forms in the forms, I mean, there's like subsets. It's oh, actually, yeah. It's actually kind of frightening when you think about it. But and when you're talking to people, if you explain it, think about how you think of cancer. You've been taught that you understand cancer is an umbrella term. It's not the name of anything. And if I told you I had cancer, you would say, which cancer? If I said I had breast cancer, skin cancer, bone cancer, lung cancer, you would say, which one? And then you would ask me what stage it is. Who's my specialist? Where will I go for care in the end? And families of people with dementia don't understand the questions you ask for cancer. And you and I have actually been trained to ask about 30 different questions that those are the same questions you ask if the word is dementia. Because as you said in the beginning, your clients come to you and say, my loved one has a diagnosis of dementia. And that's not anything. That's just that that, that doctor has not completed their work. We no. need which dementia, because Lewy body and Parkinson's people are extremely sensitive to medications. They cannot have the antipsychotic medication other people do. Some of the medications seem to uh, be effective on vascular dementia. With other doctors, they'll tell you they see no effect of those medications at all. And so the type of dementia a person has is critical for the family because I don't smoke, but my maternal grandfather had small oat cell carcinoma of the lungs and died of lung cancer, but it's still part of my medical history. With the dementias, some of them are hereditary and it's part of the person's medical history. So we need to know which one it is because it determines everything about care. Yeah, I laugh and tell most people, it's like my mom has gifted me with all kinds of things, you know, that already are going to go wrong, you know, in life. I mean, I grew up in a family of smokers, never smoked a day in my life. Grew up in a family of smokers. Mom smoked up until she was 50, had a heart attack, 
stop cold turkey, you know? And um, she said that last cigarette I took was the worst taste I'd ever had and never wanted another one. I was real surprised about that, but. And, and these folks were smoking cigarettes without filters. They, they, they yeah. were smoking real cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, um, you know, so, so when you're, so when you're talking to clients, you know, and, and, um, and so I think the most part, for the most part is, you know, clients come in, they say that's my loved one's been diagnosed with dementia, you know, but obviously there's so many different kinds. So what does that mean to the client? You know, what are they, what, what should they be doing? They should be looking for a dementia diagnosis center. And in Houston, y'all have several. A lot of times you're going to find the place that does the full testing will be at a medical school at one of, for one of the universities. So mm -hmm. you, you start there. You can also look online for the testing centers near you. And testing is not the mental, mini mental status exam. The mini mental status exam was developed by Folstein and Folstein in the 70s as an orientation test. So that if you fell down and hit your head, we could take you to the doctor. They could ask you a series of questions. And if you didn't know the answer, it indicated something was bleeding that shouldn't be. The test for dementia are the slums test, the St. Louis University mental status exam, or the Montreal MOCA test. Those are the tests that are actual cognition tests. And the person with dementia can pass the MMSE on average five more years when if you had given them the slums test or the MOCA test, it would have identified that there was a dementia process happening and it would have allowed that family to make financial decisions, to make decisions about how to protect their assets and how are they going to care for their loved one. And because of how it's done in our country, by the time the doctor says your loved one has dementia, they're already in stage five of the disease, which is the start of the terminal stages. The terminal stages are five, six, and seven. It's too late for medicine. It's too late for anything except for the continuation of a terminal brain disease. Another interesting thing is in Europe, they tell the family the person has this form of dementia and it's a terminal brain disease. In our country, we tell the person with the brain disease they have dementia. And the problem is they can't remember it. I got a phone call one day from a woman who was furious at her husband. She said, he went to the doctor and forgot to tell him he's having memory issues. And I said, ma'am, I want you to write that sentence down, read it out loud three times and then call me back. And I hung up the phone and sure enough, she, she called me back a few minutes later and said, so I should have gone with him. Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> if you think the person's having memory issues, you sort of need to go with them to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. I yeah I, my mother doesn't have memory issues and somebody's with my mother at the doctor when she goes. <laughs> so, and uh, definitely. the doctor is intimidating to that generation. You know, yeah. you, you and I, if we don't like what the doctor says, we'll go get another doctor. But that generation goes, Oh, the doctor said it, it's written in gold. I must follow this rule. And um, so, yeah, they do react differently than you and I would. Well, I learned the hard way because, you know, and, and two with, even my generation, I grew up thinking, well, the doctors know everything, you know, I mean, that was in my head, don't know where it came from, but doctors knew everything. And until I was very involved with my grandfather's care, him particular, I realized that, you know, I was living a version of house 
you know, the, te- the medical theories of uh, we're going to look at these symptoms and we're going to test for that. And we're going to look at these symptoms and we're going to test for that until they figure out what it is. It's a, it's a guess. It's an educated guessing game. And, um, and so, so that was shocking for me to, you know, to come to that realization. And I tell clients that all the time, you have to understand they're, they're making educated guesses. So you have to get more information, you know, always. And so, but listening to you, we're, it seems like a lot of the dementia tools are observational. Is that true? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, how can you ask a person with brain damage to give you a correct answer or a correct history? That that's that's a little foolish on our part. Be so the tools for dementia, whether it's anxiety, psychosis, depression, pain are all observational tools. Our staging tools are observational tools because we are observing their behaviors. And from that, we're then able to assess and, and determine what treatment is needed. And so, well, I'm going to go back a little bit and kind of back up just a little bit because I'm very curious about the stages of dementia and how someone determines what stage you're in. How, how does that work? The original staging tools were, were three stages and those tools were written for research neurologists whose IQs are probably close to 200. They were not written for a doctor to understand, even a neurologist to understand. They're very, very complex. So in the 70s, that began to be broken out into a seven-stage tool. Now, you and I are stage one, not because we're going to get dementia, we're stage one because every staging tool must have a baseline of normal and you and I are aging normally. We know who we are, where we are and what we're doing. <laughs> stage two is called mild cognitive impairment. Now, mild cognitive impairment can last for between four and 20 years. And originally we were told to look for befuddled professor. And when I work with families, I tell them, if you're talking to me, your person's probably in stage five. If you have found me and are we're having a conversation. That's how advanced it is. And that's just because research shows in our country, people don't look for outside help until their person reaches stage five, because now it's becoming more and more apparent something's wrong. But stage two is called mild cognitive impairment. Stage three is where the word dementia would be used for the first time. Oh, and let me tell you, the reason I tell families don't look at stage two is when you look at mild cognitive impairment, one by one, you and I do those behaviors uh, frequently. You walk in a room and don't remember what you went in there for. That's normal brain function. You forget somebody's name, but these are names you should know. They show a mild interest that they're beginning to have cognition issues, but then they quickly dismiss it. Even if you said, let's go to the doctor, they would say, you know, we'll go next week. Let's go get ice cream instead, which does sound more fun. So stage two, I tell families, just look at it briefly because it it should tell you that 10 or 15 years ago, you saw these behaviors starting to happen, or maybe you don't live near your parent and you didn't. Stage three is where the word dementia is used for the first time, and it's called early dementia, but we want to know which early dementia. Stage four is called moderate dementia. Stage five is called moderately severe dementia. Stage six, and at stage six, the person's now lost a pound of their brain tissue. Stage six is called severe dementia. And stage seven, which is the bedbound stage where the person is bedbound because without assistance or care, they cannot move or turn their body. They can't feed themselves or care for themselves. This is called very severe dementia. 
But again, we need to know which one it is. So what you do is you observe your person's behaviors. You take your dementia behavioral assessment tool and you check off the behaviors that you're seeing. If it's Alzheimer's, they just go down the slippery slope. If it's vascular dementia, and this is where so many people get confused, vascular dementia people stair step. They get stabilized on medication, but then they have another series of strokes or some other vascular event. And so the family thinks, oh, this is as bad as it gets. It doesn't get any worse. And then there's a stair step down. And so they can lose an entire stage over a series of vascular events that occur in a short amount of time. That makes sense? Yes. Frightening. And um, it's, it's and just, it's like, oh, it makes you wonder, should I get an assessment now or later? <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have enough information yet. We know that you can carry the genes and never develop Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. so, and we can't tell you why. In the identical twin studies where you think, oh, they definitely would both have Alzheimer's. Only about 60% of them both have Alzheimer's. So why would you want to take a test that suggests that tells you you have these genes, but we can't tell you for sure if you're going to get it? That means you spend the rest of your life walking in a room and not remembering what you went in there for. I know that's normal brain function, but you now think, oh, my God, it has started. <laughs> you can't remember the name of that good looking actor. You saw his movie last night. You love his movies. You followed him always. And you can't think of it. And you think, oh, my God, now I've got it, too. And in the middle of the night, you yell Brad Pitt. It just has to do with how your brain learned Brad Pitt. My brain learned Brad Pitt because he was dating Jennifer Aniston. And so I know he tried to crawl over and get in my Angelina Jolie file, but she kicked him to the curb. If my brain wants to find Brad Pitt, my brain always must go back to its original Brad Pitt file, which is with Jennifer Aniston. Mm -hmm. So families think, oh, my gosh, I don't know that name. That means I have dementia. And then my favorite one, you've got several grandchildren. And to name your grandchildren, you have to start with the first <laughs> and pull every single name out loud until you get to the right one. And then you've got families naming their kids crazy names. In my own family, we've got Dylan Dixon, Demi Dose, Denver Davin. We've also got Kyla Kaylee, Kelsey Kenley, Finley, Conley. Uh, we got a lot of these. And I mean, who doesn't, how does that not drive a grandparent crazy? So grandparents think I can't do that. It means I have dementia. It doesn't. It's just normal brain function. The difference is if you think your brain is not operating correctly, that is not a normal thought and you need to go get tested because there are a hundred common things that can make a person appear to have dementia. And the number one of those is depression and depression is treatable. The second one is anxiety. Anxiety is treatable. The next one is pain. Pain is treatable. So we need to find out what's going on with this person. It could be a vitamin deficiency. It could be a hormone slightly out of balance. So trying to get people into testing earlier is, is one of the big goals of our country. You just mentioned pain. What does pain have to do with, with dementia? How does that untreated chronic pain and every decade of life gives you another level of pain, but you and I, our humans are taught to suppress their pain. You look at a little girl falls down in the gravel. We all rush over and pick her up and dust her off. A little boy falls down in the gravel and we tell him to suck it up, get up. <laughs> He's a man. He doesn't have any pain. You and I had cramps. They didn't have medicine for that. They just told us to shut up and go to school 
and we did. It. <laughs> I know, dragging one leg behind us and wanting to kill everybody. And that broken bone from high school now has arthritis in it. So every decade of life gives you another level of pain. It's just that if you sit and let yourself feel pain all day, you couldn't complete your job. You couldn't do what you're supposed to do. So you've been taught all your life to suppress pain. 50% of the behaviors in people with dementia are caused by untreated chronic pain. In Texas, you can give a person PRN pain medicine. Now, people think PRN means as needed, but let's take PRN one step further. PRN means I have a three pound brain. I know you're my nurse. I know my hip is hurting. I know to come to you and ask for my pain medicine. People with dementia don't have three pound brains. How would they ever ask for medication described like, prescribed like that? In other states, the uh, doctor is not allowed to give PRN medication to a person with dementia because the other states recognize they have brain damage. How would they know to ask? So we use a form called PAINAD and it's all capital letters, P-A-I-N-A-D, and it stands for Pain Assessment in Advanced Dementia. And if you're a parent, you look at the scale and you go, ah, this is what I did when I brought my baby home from the hospital. Huh, we know that. We just took it and added numbers to it. And what will happen is you do your pain scale on your loved one and you make sure that they get their pain medicine. People with dementia have at least one behavioral episode a day. We can control 50% of those behaviors by making sure the person has no pain. And you see physicians who don't understand this uh, come in and remove arthritis medicine. When I go through charts in buildings, I see people who have arthritis diagnoses, but no arthritis medicine. I see people who have diagnoses that say pain diagnosis and no pain medicine. And so if we treat for pain, that's half our battle. Wow, that's, that's, that's new for me. So that's really good information. And so mm -hmm. I was like, wow, and uh, this is phenomenal. If somebody wants to find you, you know, uh, how do they do that? Well, I write my number on every McDonald's bathroom wall I come to, so <laughs> local McDonald's. But if I haven't been to your area, uh, my number is 254-216-3668. It's actually my real number. I really do answer it. If I don't answer it right away, it's just because I'm traveling. If you need help right away, keep calling. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'll figure out you need help right away. Um, otherwise, it may be a week or more before I get back to you. You can go to my website, which is tamcummings.com. And at the very bottom of the front page, and I understand you have to scroll for a while, is the tools section. And in the tools section, you will find the Cornell Scale for Depression and, and Dementia. It's an observational tool. You'll find the Hamilton Anxiety Tool, observational tool. You'll find the Brief Psychiatric Rating Scale, which is what the doctor is using in their mind when they give your loved one an antipsychotic. And so it's very powerful to know what that, what that is actually being done for. And what happens a lot of times is families read the brief psychiatric rating scale and realize their loved one does need an antipsychotic because the right medication will take that edge off. And you can either have your person be like this. I'm trying to find the camera. Be like this the rest of their dementia journey. Or you can let the proper doctor give them medication so that we keep them as close to who they normally were as possible. There's um, Zaret's Burden Interview on there for the family member to measure their own stress level. 
There is the MM caregiver grief inventory because the families are grieving. You're watching your loved one die a little bit at a time right in front of you. And you don't have any information telling you why that is happening. And so all of the tools on the website are free. They're on the public domain. You're available to use them. And we've even developed a staging tool for frontal temporal dementias. And most of the time when I meet FTD families, they've only been told their person has FTD. They haven't been told which FTD. And the FTDs are divided into behavioral, sexual, communication disorders, or movement disorders. And so you, you got to know which one in order to use that, that particular scale. Perfect. Thanks so much. This has been phenomenal today. I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the show. Oh, I can't thank you enough for what you do. God bless you, girl. See you soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice.